It is a joy to be with you. I've been looking forward to this day for quite a while, and uh, it's even more exciting to get pictures of my grandson uh, from afar and to be able to hook to the internet and to see his growth and development. His name is Toby. Toby, actually a Hebrew word, Tobias, God is good, and he indeed is. He already has a nickname, Toby Juan Kenobi, <laughs> we're going to call him. And uh, which, which I think is appropriate because he is a great hope to us, no doubt, uh, in, in, our, in, in, our, uh, in our times. We're excited to be here, though. Thank you for the, for the welcome, the invitation, the great hospitality. I have heard of Acadia uh, Divinity College for a number of years. I think I was in, in, back in the 80s the first time I heard of it and began to kind of follow and track with some of the scholars here in this great university. My first time to Nova Scotia, and it is a delight to be with you. I bring you greetings from my university, Houston Baptist University, and our president, Dr. Robert Sloan, who is, I think he's happy that I'm here and not there. I'm not sure why that is, but he's, uh, I don't cause him trouble, I promise, but uh, it is a delight to be with you today and to worship with you and to, to be a part of your singing and your hymning and your reading of scripture and this glorious uh, dance that helped us picture and to experience Psalm 139 in, in a new, in a fresh way. My topic for this, uh, this, this, this time is the imitation of Christ. I'm convinced as I think about children and how they come into the world that human beings are kind of made for imitation. Some of that is deliberate and some of that is not deliberate. We come out of the womb with mind and an eye, an ear, and a heart to see people around us, to admire them, to love them, and then want to imitate them. Again, a lot of that is we plan, perhaps, but some of that, much of that, is unconscious. And that's sort of what I want to explore with you this morning. The unconscious, the non-deliberate aspect, the not thought out part of it. I know that it happens. I had a student the other day come to me. She's a a non-traditional student in her, about her 30s, late 30s. She has three children. She said to me in a moment, kind of an unguarded moment, she said, the other day I opened my mouth and my mother came out. <laughs> you know what I mean. She had swore that she would not be like her mother. She would not speak like her mother. She would not treat her children the way she felt. But in fact, we do that. We don't plan on that. We don't deliberate on that. We don't will that. It just happens. You likely think as I speak that I sound a bit funny. I come from another part of the world. I didn't choose that. I didn't say that I wanted to be born in the United States of America or that I wanted to speak English as my first language or that I would want to take on the accent of the southern states. Come to Houston. You'll sound funny. Right? <laughs> That's just what happens. We, 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 we celebrate that. But we don't plan on that. It just sort of happens. We learn to speak. My wife and I are working on a second language together. And there are things that my tongue cannot do. There are sounds that I have trouble making. And it will take me a long time. It's because my body has been formed in a particular way. To make sounds a particular way. When I take on that other language, or at least try to, I discover how, much, how difficult it is. And there are mannerisms that we have. I often am invited to speak at a, a church in Houston. It's Grace Presbyterian Church. I've probably been there more than any other church in Houston. And as a part of that, I, I have met a couple there. He's named Pat, 
and she's named Pat. It's Pat and Pat. They've been married about 50 years together. They have grown, they have fell in love together, they grew old together, and they have lived together, and this is a great evidence that the two have become one. They both have kind of a pear-shaped body. They're about the same height, he a little taller than she, but their haircut is very similar to each other. They go to the optometrist and order glasses, and they show off their new glasses. Well, her glasses look like his glasses. She finishes his thoughts. Sometimes he doesn't even need to speak. <laughs> you know about that. But we, we come together, we love each other, we <clears throat> admire each other, and we, lo and behold, we don't plan on it, but we start looking like each other. We start acting like each other over time. We've all known somebody to go off to the British Isles to do an education, come back with just a hint of a British accent saying things like, they'll take the lift to the third floor. thought it was an elevator. You know? That they're going to pick us up at, or come by and collect us, actually, right? Collect you at half past the hour. Things like that. They don't, you don't mean to do that. It just happens. It's because you see someone, you admire them, and you want to be like them. This is a very human thing that we do. Let me remind you of some of the scriptures that we have read this morning and some others in very brief, 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus. When Jesus said, follow me, I'm convinced he didn't mean just get in line behind me and let's go. Follow me means more than that. When Jesus said, keep doing this at the, the table of the Lord with the, the bread and the wine, keep doing this as my memorial, I don't think that it was just happenstance. Imitate Christ means you imitate God. Paul says that in Ephesians 5. Become imitators of God. And then there are those shorthanded ways where the scripture says, walk as he walked, love as he loved, forgive as he forgave. When you look at the ancient world, imitation was part and parcel of what it meant to be formed morally, to have our moral lives, our ethical lives formed. Now the moralist of those days, they preferred a living model, someone you could see and touch and handle. And yet they said it was okay to study historical figures. That's why we have Plutarch's lives and other biographies that are written in part, not just to entertain, but also to inspire action, to memorize their words, to watch their deeds, and become like these great men of the past, their lives were worthy of imitation. So New Testament writers adopted this kind of moral discourse. In the book of Hebrews, it says, the writer says, remember your leaders and imitate their faith. Paul to the Thessalonians, imitate the Judean churches and their patient endurance during persecution. The apostle to the Gentile boldly said, watch me, imitate me, and you will see Jesus. It's a pretty bold thing to say. But always these appeal to personal examples or penultimate to the appeal to imitate Christ. I remember the first time, I don't know where I was, I was hiding under a rock, I suppose. But I remember the first time that the four letters WWJD came into my consciousness. I knew the principle. But one night, I do with a radio show in Houston, a priest, a minister, and a rabbi. I know it sounds like a joke. But we've been on the air 12 years, won a couple of awards. It's been a delightful 
some of my best friends in the world. We, we share together on the radio. And one night, the, the priest, Father Michael Baird, an Opus Dei priest, came in wearing a little, a little band around his wrist. It had four letters, W-W-J-D. So what is that? He said, you don't know? And he began telling me, it stands for what would Jesus do? And we began talking about that. And other people began wearing the, the bracelets at that time. And it's a good thing. I think it helps us from time to time to think about that. But I began to think, okay, if we were to walk as he walked, love as he loved. If we were to say, what would Jesus do? We have to know first, what did Jesus do? You can't say one without the other. It's one thing to say, well, forgive. It's another thing to say, forgive as he forgave. And so I need a story, I need a gospel, I need a narrative. And I think, and I would argue, that in part, the gospels themselves are written to provide us a script for for imitation. To offer us an opportunity to see how Jesus lived out his life so that we too might follow him, we too might imitate him. Philip Davis says this about the gospel of Mark. Mark's story of Jesus can be read as a blueprint for the Christian life. It begins with baptism, proceeds with a vigorous pursuit of ministry in the face of temptation and opposition, and culminates in the suffering and death oriented toward it as yet unseen future and vindication. Justin Martyr, in his first apology, written in the middle of the second century, describes for his audience early Christian worship. He said, we gather together on the day of the sun. We gather from the city, we gather for the country, all together in one place. And someone reads from the memoirs of the apostles, perhaps the gospels, as long as time will allow. And then the president of the congregation stands up and urges everyone to imitate the noble things they have just heard. My tradition is a little different than that. We have one minute of scripture, followed by 30 minutes of commentary on scripture. They read scripture as long as time would allow. And then they said, let's imitate these noble things that we've heard. I'm wondering about that. I'm wondering about how we ought to think about church and how we ought to think about gathering together for worship and what that means. Imitating Christ, following what did Jesus do, learning about that, reading the gospels, meditating on the gospels, then conforming our life but, but Ralph Martin said one day, he said, who can really become a second Christ? Who can become? Is that what we are to become? A second Christ? Gerald Hawthorne responded, but followers can, maybe we can't become a second Christ, but followers can allow the thinking and the actions of Jesus to fashion their lives into conformity to God's purpose. There are aspects of Jesus' life that we cannot imitate. I can't go back and be born of a virgin. Too late. I don't think we are to nail ourselves to a cross on Good Friday. Some have taken those things rather literally, injuring their bodies for reasons of spiritual development and such. I don't think we're to take it that way. I'm wondering how the early church did it, and I have a theory about that. My theory is that they took seriously those kinds of things that they could do. They could walk as he walked, love as he loved, forgive as he forgave. But there are aspects of the life of Jesus that we cannot imitate. In fact, we must not. But the early church, I think, they liturgized the story. 
in such a way so that when they came together in worship, they rehearsed that story again and again. And thus, in a sort of unconscious way, it began to seep into their psyche. It began to go down into their mind, much like hearing an accent. And though not deliberately choosing it, unconsciously taking it on and letting it become part of our lives. They preserved in the memory of, of the church, Jesus, the one they were urged to imitate. I think about the Lord's Day. Every Sunday we gather. Typically, in the early church, it included a meal. This likely happened because of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances. If you follow the story in John's Gospel particularly, Jesus appeared not just on any day of the week. He always appeared on the Lord's Day, Sunday. And very often, that included a meal when he appeared with them. So the church got together, began getting together. Accustomed to the fact that Jesus would be with them, wherever two or three are gathered, Jesus promised to be together in their midst, and they would share the scripture, and they would teach and they would expect him to be present in their gatherings. And they would share a meal. And they would go out to live their lives. I think about the Lord's Prayer, the prayer that has become customary, that we pray. The prayer that Jesus gave us when the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. As John taught his disciples to pray. And Jesus gave them what we know today is the Lord's Prayer. It's a little bit of a translational difference. Some will say, well, you were to pray like this. But when we come to the Didache, that early Christian church order late in the first century, it doesn't say pray like this. It says pray this prayer. And I think they probably prayed it three times a day. Imagine stopping at 9 a.m., at 12 noon, at 3 p.m. every day, whatever you're doing, stopping and taking a moment and praying the Lord's Prayer. Not just saying the Lord's Prayer, but praying the Lord's Prayer. I wonder what it would do for us spiritually. I wonder about the posture of prayer. Nothing prescribed necessarily. Jesus stood, stand, uh, prayed standing. He, he prayed often with his eyes open, sometimes probably with his eyes closed. We don't know. We begin reading early Christians on prayer, and it's interesting what they begin to say about it. What we know from the ancient world is that when people approach their gods, their, the pagans, they would approach God this way. We know it from drawings and descriptions that they would go in their pagan temples and address God this way. They would pray with hands lifted. I've seen that, right? Have you seen that in churches? Jews would go into the temple. They would address God with their hands raised. Christians did the same thing, but they changed it up just a little bit. Rather, what we, just, what we know is that early Christians, rather than praying like this to God, they prayed like this to God. They lowered their hands to make their bodies into the form of the cross. Next time you see somebody doing this in church, say, pagan. <laughs> Do it right. <laughs> now, I say that sort of in a silly way, but what would it do for us? The first side of the cross is the entire body. I love the dance because the entire body was involved. I can do that. <laughs> the entire body is involved. And there are passages in, 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 the, in the Hebrew Bible that talk about let every bone of your body, let every sinew in your body give praise to God. And I think that's what we've beheld here today. 
Listen to a few passages from early Christians thinking about this. Justin Martyr about Moses. Moses took on a cruciform posture in the battle with the Amalekites. This is what Justin said. If Moses gave up any part of the sign, the people of God were beaten back. But if he remained in this form, you remember he's helped and assisted in that. Amalek is proportionally defeated. They they prevailed in that battle by the cross. The cross brought victory to the people of God. A lesser known early Christian text, the Ode of Solomon said this, I extended my hands and approached my Lord, for the expansion of my hands is his sign, and my extension is the common cross that was lifted up on the way to the righteous one. Again, it says, I extended my hands and hallowed my Lord, for the expansion of my hands is his sign, and my extension is the upright cross. Hallelujah. Justin Martyr said, the sign of the cross is everywhere you look. It's in sails and plows and tools. It's in the human body. It's in the human nose. It's everywhere you see. Tertullian says that birds pray as well when they leap from their nest and they spread the cross in their wings. Christians looked everywhere and saw the image of the cross. I think we're just not acculturated into that. I don't think we are brought up to think that way. Eusebius recounts the story of a martyrdom of a young man. He was not quite 20 years old. He was thrown in there while other people were sort of cringing as the animals, the bears and the leopards came at them. He decided that the last thing the people would see as they cheered him at his death, that he would stand up and make the form of the cross. So he stood to his feet, he made the form of a cross, he engaged in fervent prayer, never retreating from the animals as they came and approached him. And Eusebius tells us that some mysterious power muzzled them and caused the animals to run away. This whole notion of the imitation of Christ can be very deliberate. There are times that I need to be reminded I should be more loving like Jesus was loving. Let's look at the story of how Jesus loved. I need to be more forgiving. Let's look at the story. But there are other aspects of the life of Jesus that we cannot imitate, that we must not even try. And I would suggest to you that when we come together to worship on the Lord's day at the Lord's table, that becomes the arena of transformation into his image and likeness. As we go through the liturgy of the church, as we recite these hymns over and over again, something happens unintentionally. We take on the mannerisms of Christ. We are conformed to his image. If we stay away from worship, if we refuse it, if we say, oh, I can worship God on the golf course, or I can worship God in some other way, then we miss out on the opportunity to hear the scriptures and to be formed into that image and that nature of Christ. We can intentionally decide to follow Jesus, to walk as he walked, love as he loved, forgive as he for, uh, forgive as he forgave. We can take the gospels as our script for imitation, but a part of what I think we need to do is learn to liturgize the scripture and dance them out and sing them out and let them become part of our mind, our soul, our body. Paul says the ultimate of the Christian life, the ultimate goal, 
is to be conformed to the image and likeness of Christ. Some of that is deliberate. It's planned. It's purposeful. But I suggest to you that when we put ourselves in a community of worshiping people, it just sort of happens. As we sing these hymns, as we reenact the stories in worship, as we engage scripture, as we break bread together, as we go through the cycle of the church year, year after year, we unconsciously take on the life and the image of Christ. Amen.